Well, let us resume our exploration of the seven factors of enlightenment. And the first factor is mindfulness. So we will spend this talk on mindfulness. A little bit before, I want to say that, uh, as I mentioned in the previous talk, that the uh, seven factors are, are very uplifting, very positive, and very healing. And there is a specific sutta called the Bojanga Parita. A parita is a more or less a protection, the protection of Dhamma. And it describes the recitation of the seven factors of enlightenment because an arahant is sick. Uh, the arahant is, uh, there are two arahants. Mogalana, Venerable Mogalana is the chief, uh, one of the two chief disciples of the Buddha. And there's another arahant named Kashapa, who is also among the great disciples of the Buddha. And uh, the story around the sutta recounts that they are, they are ill and uh, monks come and recite the seven factors of awakening and they recover very quickly from their illness because, of course, a huge amount of appreciation, they have cultivated these seven factors of awakening and they have delivered them to enlightenment. And so when they hear these recited, it has such a powerful impact that the illness leaves their body. So in case you're wondering whether Buddhism has a kind of a structures for dealing with illness, yes, they do. At the International Forest Monastery, we were very near to Ajahn Chah's, the famous uh, Thai forest master, Ajahn Chah. He was very ill during the last years of his life, and we would go over once a week and do chanting for him. And he was actually in a wheelchair then, being fed by a tube through the nose and so forth. Couldn't speak. But they wheel him out, and uh, we would chant. And one of the particular chants for him was the Bojanga Suttas. And it's thought that, usually it's thought that uh, they are generally healing, but I don't think they're necessarily healing for everybody who doesn't understand what they are. I think it's particularly healing for those who have developed the seven factors and appreciate them. Then it is inspiring and helpful because all of the, uh, the people who were cured of a physical illness by the recitation are actually arahants. They're fully enlightened people. So... You can uh, consider that, and it doesn't hurt if you want to have it recited to you when you are ill. It won't hurt. Um, so it's, it's one of the paritas or protective chants that you can use for helping with physical illness. Other chants, of course, like the Loving Kindness Sutta, also are very positive and uplifting and can help with uh, physical ailments. But it is... Uh, important to realize just how positive and healing these description of the seven factors are. So let us go on to mindfulness. And of course, mindfulness being the first of the seven factors is a critical element in all of the, the path. There is no path without mindfulness. Nobody can progress if they haven't cultivated mindfulness. If you can't pay attention and you can't direct your attention, it's hopeless. So you can't make it very far on the path until you do cultivate this 
capacity for sustained attention. And so we have all kinds of exercises for that. This is the meditative part. And it has uh, become very popular in the West as well because people realize the benefits. And they may not be Buddhist or they may be, they think they're Buddhist, but they're using it as a kind of a therapy or just a way of improving their quality of their life. So they have selected mindfulness as something that anybody can practice, even if with different religious beliefs, they can practice it and it will be profitable. Or if they have no religious beliefs at all, if they're simply a materialist attitude to life, they will benefit from the exercise of mindfulness. Uh, some of the, the exercises that one can take up are breath meditation. And of course, we, we have given many retreats on using breath meditation. The Buddha recommended that as a, as a way of developing your attention. It's very subtle and very hard. It is to pay attention to the in and out breaths in the nasal cavity. Uh, and it is a daunting task to actually pay attention and not let the mind wander. And if you wonder what the point of this exercise is, is exactly that, that it's a low sensory, neither repulsive nor attractive subject, which requires enormous retention of focus in order to not to be kidnapped by your, the, the wanderings of your own mind. You'll find if you attempt to sit down and watch the breath, for an extended period of time, even for a minute, if you can manage to actually fully sustain attention on the experience of breathing and, and to locate it, for instance, in the nasal cavity where you feel the change of temperature, the, the breath is body temperature on the exhalation and it's cool on the inhalation. If you can find that and focus on that without giving yourself a headache, so this is a kind of a relaxed attention, it's not a laser-like attention, it's just remaining attentive to the breath. And if you can put all other thoughts and so forth aside, um, most people can't do this for even 60 seconds. Congratulations if you can manage to do this for one minute. If you can do it for one minute, do it for two, three, four, five you will find that within a very short time, and even if you're a, a neurosurgeon or a professional violinist or a tightrope walker, you'll find that all of those things require less attention than it is to pay attention completely to the breath, inhalation, and out exhalation. There's very few things in life which demand that intensity of concentration. And the reason is it's a fairly low grade object. It's, a, it's something that is just part of your life. But it, it trains and develops the muscles of attention. And in fact, you may not even know that you have been gone. You, you, 20 minutes later, you started out with breath meditation and you ended up planning your holidays for the next year. Or going into family melodramas from your early childhood or dreaming of winning the lottery or a revenge fantasy of murdering somebody who did you wrong. <laughs> you will be gone. <laughs> uh, 
And then the bell will ring and you realize, oh yeah, right, I was supposed to be <laughs> doing it. So you, you see the, how little attention control we have. And so this is, a, this is to develop supernormal capacities. If you want a better than average life, a supernormal life, you're going to have to develop supernormal capacities. What is it that makes a better life? It's not getting wealthy. It's not getting a tan. It's not being admired. It's not becoming famous. It just doesn't do it. Lots of people who have all of those things are not happy whatsoever. And so it must be something if it's possible at all. And some would deny it's possible at all. <laughs> uh, they haven't encountered systematic training of the mind. So this is a systematic training of the mind using mindfulness and such objects as the breath. By the way, breath meditation is very useful and universally practiced, but it's not the only thing. Attention is valuable in all cases. You're attending to your, the processes of your work, etc. I want to just say that there's a difference between mindfulness, as spoken of widely and practiced in all kinds of sort of meditation structures, and right mindfulness. Right mindfulness is very particularly directed to something. It is not merely the observation or awareness of things, but a selective awareness. It participates and cooperates with something called virya, or energy, and vayamo, effort. So the right effort and right energy are required to be mixed in with right mindfulness. Mindfulness being the seventh factor of the Eightfold Path, right effort being the sixth factor of the Eightfold Path. And so you will see, of course, in the seven factors that mindfulness is the first factor and this virya or right effort is the third factor. And these things cooperate with each other. They exchange places with each other. Sometimes effort is dominant, sometimes mindfulness is dominant, but they're always working together. So the mindfulness reports to right effort and asks right effort to prevent and remove things which are an impediment to the development of the enlightened mind. And those typically are the five hindrances. Those are the impediments to the development of the enlightened mind. So whenever mindfulness spots this, uh, any of these five hindrances in its practice, it calls up right effort and has them escort the offending irritants out of the city. Mindfulness, there's a beautiful simile. In order to understand mindfulness, you should uh, appreciate that there's basically only two descriptions given by the Buddha for mindfulness. One is memory. It is to remember instructions given previously or long ago. So this is the, of course, your, your mother endlessly did this when you were a kid. She would say, how many times have I told you not to run with a knife in your hand. <laughs> How many times have I told you to don't put your glass of water near the edge of the table? And of course, just the next day you knock your glass of water off the table. Isn't it amazing? So that's a lack of the capacity to remember the instructions, the skillful 
way to navigate through life. You have been told not to shout at people or swear at people on the street and so forth, and you do it and then you get beaten up and you come home and then somebody says, well, how many times do you have to hear not to do that? <laughs> so it is the lack of capacity to recall skillful instructions given. And so mindfulness is a form of memory in that sense. And the other sense is that it is an informed sentry. So the mindfulness is described as a sentry which is posted at the gates of a city, a walled city. And only those who have been described to mindfulness as permissible to admit to the city are allowed to come in. And those would be the wholesome mental states, including the seven factors of awakening, any of these factors of, of right investigation, right effort or right energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, equanimity, all of the four sublime abidings, which are loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Notice equanimity comes up in the four Brahma Viharas, the four sublime emotional states. It also comes up as a factor of awakening. And so these are to be admitted. Uh, mindfulness observes it and welcomes it in and asks right effort to lend a hand to make sure the guests are well taken care of and encouraged to stay and to stay as long as you can keep them there. So this is the cooperation between these two factors. And at the same time, not everybody gets in to the walled city. So anger doesn't get in, greed doesn't get in, sloth, lethargy doesn't get in, agitation doesn't get in, and certain kinds of doubt don't get in. They are escorted out more or less like a border post. In the days of the Buddha, there weren't really countries, there were uh, kingdoms, and essentially the population lived this essential population lived in a walled city to defend itself. So that was very important because uh, the sort of tribal things attacking to each other. Now we have borders that are rather different than uh, being in a walled city. Although uh, there was an attempt apparently to build a wall between Mexico and the United States there recently. Uh, how'd that work out? Um, this mindfulness and acuity of and discriminatory uh, faculty is very, very important. It's the essence of progress. Quite often this is skipped over in, in ordinary descriptions of mindfulness. It's described as simply watching, but it's not simply watching. It's a cooperative effort with uh, other factors in order for it to function that way. So mindfulness participates in, in all of the other factors so it, it has to be there when you're investigating Dhamma because you will drift off. You will drift off and realize you're not actually investigating Dhamma. Dhamma is the, roughly the teachings of the Buddha. And here you, here's where things start to overlap in a very, in a, in a kind of an, a knitting way, crocheted way. Things are knotted together. Right mindfulness uh, has four categories. 
The first category is mindfulness of the body. The next category, mindfulness of feelings. The next category, mindfulness of the mind. And the last category, mindfulness of Dhamma objects. And this is where we get this Dhamma Vichaya as well. What we get under this fourth foundation of mindfulness are some little drop-down menus, some little lists. And the first of them being, wonderfully, the five hindrances, which I had listed before. Greed, anger, sloth, agitation, and doubt. These five are, it's called a Dhamma category, a, a Dhamma mm, structure that has a whole set of instructions associated with it, what to do about them. Are they negative? Are they positive? Are they neutral? How are they to be tolerated or not tolerated? How are they to be gotten free of? How are they to be, uh, how are you to remain free of them, etc.? So there are not simply something to be examined, there's something to be done with actions associated with them. There's something to be done with them. Then you have the next category is uh, the five khandas, the five aspects of a human, the body, consciousness, feelings, perception, volitions, and then six sense experiences. So sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and the sense of the products of the mind. The mind itself is considered the sixth sense. And then we come to the next one. What do you imagine the next category is? We've gone through five, six, and now we're at seven. What would that be? Ah, seven factors of awakening. Isn't that interesting? Four foundations of mindfulness, right? Mindfulness contains the seven factors of awakening. And that is the obligation of right mindfulness to scrutinize the seven factors of awakening and there are specific instructions about what to do with those seven factors of awakening. And that has been given in a previous part of the path, which is called right effort. Right effort, you are instructed to get rid of any negative mental states that have arisen and to prevent the arising of future negative mental states. And the third right effort is to maintain any positive mental states that have arisen, and if they haven't arisen, to bring them into production and sustain them and develop them. So these are the four right efforts, and the first two apply to the five hindrances. Back to right mindfulness. The fourth foundation of right mindfulness begins with the five hindrances, and you've had instructions under right effort to free yourself of them if they arise and to prevent them arising in the future. You're to prevent greed, anger. Uh, by the way, anger uh, could be uh, all the way from mild irritation or even boredom to cold hatred. That's the, the, the range of this emotion. That is to be prevented and if it rises, removed. And then the seven factors of awakening are the, what is described under right effort, under the positive emotions. If the seven factors have not arisen, then you should seek them out, 
find out how to develop them and search around for them and to bring them into existence. So this is where the gardening simile comes. So we need to uh, examine the seed catalogs for the seeds of things that we want to grow in the garden. We have to look out of this wild garden, which is uncultivated. That is the natural state of the mind. It's just stuff is growing all over the place. There's weeds and all kinds of things. These are the, the weeds and, and negative things are the five hindrances. So the gardening catalog tells you, oh, for, you got to get rid of these uh, weeds. So you're out there getting rid of the weeds and you have to mulch so that they don't grow back. So you're going to have to prevent their regrowth. And certain weeds grow back under certain conditions and so forth. You're going to have to learn how to make sure that they don't come back. Some of them, if you just cut them off, then they, they, they proliferate, but uh, you have to dig them out right at the roots, etc. So then what are you going to plant? What is the positive? What are the beautiful things? What are the, the vegetables and the flowers that you're going to plant? Those are the seven factors of awakening. And you have to know, and first of all, what are they? What are the beautiful factors? Lots of you ask, do a, a survey of people. What are the beautiful factors? They may not be able to name them. So you have to know what, what are the beautiful factors. And by the way, they're, they're basically, if you want to, instead of all these groups of sevens and fives and so forth, if you want the basics, the basics are that you can hold this in your mind by, there's the basic three problems are greed, hatred, and delusion. And the, the solution to those are non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. But in the positive sense, what is the opposite of greed? Generosity or uh, indifference to, to things, indifference or renunciation. Generosity, what's the opposite of hatred and so forth is love or kindness. And the opposite of delusion is clarity. So all of this stuff can be come down to a little handful of three if you just keep that in mind. What's got to go? Greed, hatred, delusion. They will ruin your life. They make you an unacceptable member of society and they will ruin your interior life. What will produce beauty in your life? Happiness instantly, now, here, generosity, kindness, clarity. And will make you a praised member of the society, at least by those who are wise and the higher type of person in society. We'll praise that. So when we look at these seven factors of enlightenment, they are the, the details of what you are to cultivate in this garden of right effort. And so the, this is where you encounter them is strangely, and well, not strangely, but uh, what we call recursively. Recursive means that, it, that things loop over themselves and interlace with themselves. In the teachings of the Buddha, you'll find this throughout the, the, uh, the teachings. They are intertwined and reinforce each other. So you're finding the seven factors of awakening in the four foundations of mindfulness. And in the four foundations of mindfulness is right mindfulness within right mindfulness. So the first factor of the seven factors is right mindfulness, and, and it's in the category of right mindfulness. So this is um, what is to be cultivated and developed. You will find in the description of the four foundations of mindfulness at the end that there's a little tag at the end of the sutta. 
whoever develops these four foundations of mindfulness also ends up by, they are fulfilled in the seven factors of awakening. And the seven factors of awakening fulfill the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path fulfills the factors which spill off into right knowledge and right liberation. In other words, these are all, they, they produce the next uh, section of the path on the way to enlightenment. Four foundations of, of mindfulness yield the seven factors of awakening. Seven factors of awakening fulfill the Eightfold Path and the Eightfold Path fulfills right understanding and liberation. So this is, this is how they're related. And you see this in the last foundation of mindfulness. So this is the beginning of the seven factors of enlightenment, the right mindfulness. So it's a very nice connection. And you'll see this in, again with right mindfulness. When you just look at the right mindfulness sutta, it ends, in, it ends with this culmination of the seven factors of enlightenment, followed by, we went through this, five, five hindrances, five khandhas, six sense bases, seven factors of enlightenment, and what is the last one? The Eightfold Path. So it just neatly spills from one basket into the next. One, this one overflows into the next one, fills that, the next one fills the next one. Mindfulness, in brief, is a, well, it's a whole retreat in itself, and uh, I would advise you to Look at the Four Foundations of Mindfulness retreat that I gave, and it's how many, 10 talks or nine, nine talks, nine talks on, the, on right mindfulness. So in this retreat, I will not talk for nine hours on right mindfulness because you can access it, but I just want to go over briefly. The first one is the foundation is the body. So you, you must understand your relationship to the body, and you must get some distance from the body, some objective sense of the body, both your own body and the body of others. Otherwise, you'll be trapped both in aversion and attraction and fear as well. Because the nature of the body is very complicated. And we, even to this day, with the most advanced medical science we have, we don't understand how it works. If we did, we could cure all illnesses. We, we, we don't. We don't know quite why they arise, when they arise. Many of them we can't treat at all. It's out of our control. It's a strange thing. And yet it's where we live. We live with this thing. And we, we can't be walking around in ease and joy and tranquility if we have a, the wrong relationship with our body. And one of the wrong relationships is fear. Like fear is obviously not a state of ease and non-fear. So mindfulness of the body is a way of addressing these mm, neurotic attitudes to one's own body and the body of others. So you can also have aversion. You don't like the shape of your body or critical of your body, or you're very proud of your body or vain about your body. You have ideas that your body is under your control. These have to be gotten over. Your body is out of your control. You can't command it. It will get sick and it will age by itself and it grows by itself and runs by itself. So this is one of the ways of becoming rational about your body. And it also creates a great deal of psychic distress for many people when they want 
they want their body to be perfect, they, they think their body is perfect, then the slightest criticism is very problematic for them, etc. This has to be gotten over. You can't dwell with the normal attitudes that humans have towards the body. You can't be negligent towards it. You can't be over-possessive towards it. You can't be vain about it. And you can't be dismayed by it. Otherwise, you can't have, you can't have independence. You can't have that your state of mind is removed from the conditions of your body. And that's the purpose of this right, right mindfulness regarding the body. Feelings, again, if you're always interested in little moments of pleasure, pleasurable sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, or ideas, then you're going to be disappointed because you cannot maintain that in life. So that this is what we, the relationship to feelings, pleasant feelings, neutral feelings, and unpleasant feelings. This has to be straightened out. You have to become rational about the nature of bodily feelings. There are two types of feelings. One, which simply occur in the physical body. You stub your toe, it's painful. You're cold and you come in and you have a nice hot shower and it feels pleasant. You're walking around afterwards, you don't have any aches and pains and nothing pleasant is going on, that's neutral feeling. These are your bodily feelings and you need to learn to relate to those in a rather detached way. You can't be too concerned with grasping at pleasant feelings and you can't be too dismayed when painful feelings arise and you can't be too bored when neutral feelings are happening. Otherwise, you'll be chasing your own tail for the rest of your life um, because those things cannot be sustained and it'll be a source of frustration. There's another type of feeling, and this is commonly confused in, in Buddhist teachings. Uh, these are the emotional feelings, pleasant emotional feelings, neutral emotional feelings, and unpleasant emotional feelings. You cannot be detached from those feelings. You can be detached from your bodily feelings, but pleasant emotional feelings, unpleasant emotional feelings, like say anger, you can't, you're not detached from your own anger. You are not merely an observer of your own anger. This is, this is a very common mistake to make and you'll hear philosophies and different traditions and so forth make this mistake. When you're angry, you're not detached and angry. You're angry. You can be aware of your anger, but that is not good enough. And the mere awareness of your anger is not an accomplishment. It is the beginning of something. And that is, it's the beginning of right effort. The right effort is to remove the anger and to prevent it re-arising. So you have a special relationship to this category mindfulness of feelings. And this is a very brief description, but it's one of the most frequent misunderstandings and stumbling blocks in mindfulness that not enough attention has been brought to the fact that you have to address negative emotions and positive emotions in certain ways and that to simply be attentive to them is not enough. Third category is uh, mindfulness of the mind. And it's just a little mm, division into, am I angry or not? 
So this is, this is in increasing your self-awareness. Am I angry or not? Am I greedy or not? Am I confused or not? Am I having an expansive, uh, luminous state of mind or not? Just makes it into, into, divides it into two to help you sort out this, this tangle and of, of the inner states. Most people, it, it, they haven't any way of categorizing their own in, inner states. Sometimes they, they, they're fully aware, oh yes, I'm very angry. They'll tell you, I'm, I'm really angry with you. <laughs> But uh, people can be angry and not know it. Uh, they might be, have a low-grade experience of anger all the time. And that, in fact, is a kind of what merges into depression as well as anger. The, the root is you're angry at life itself. You're angry at yourself. If you sustain this long enough, you, you drift, you, go, you spiral down into greater sadness and greater distress because it, everything is painful. So... This is a beginning advice, but it shouldn't be used as a standalone type of experience for right mindfulness. Mindfulness of knowing whether you're angry or not is not enough. It's, it's only one category of right mindfulness, and it is not exempt from the description of right effort, what is to be removed, what is to be preserved. But if you don't know whether you're angry or not, if you don't recognize it, then there's nothing you can do about it. And as we, I began with the fourth category, which was the mindfulness of Dhamma categories. When you turn the page on the sutta, after the third of the categories of right mindfulness of the mind, whether you're angry or not, greedy or not, turn the page and then it's mindfulness of the five hindrances. Well, you're just talking, and so the five hindrances are greed, anger, depression, agitation, and doubt. So that's kind of a repetition. But what it is, is it's, in, it's framed in a, in, a, in a section on the five hindrances, and there's specific instructions about what to do with the five hindrances. The previous page is, first, just recognize things. Are you angry or not? If you, if you can't recognize it, there's nothing. We can't go on with this. You should, you'd be acutely able to describe your emotional experience right now, any time during the day, should be instantly able to say what it is you are experiencing. Are you experiencing greed? Are you want something? You know, what do you want? What are you, what are you preoccupied with? What do, you, what do you want? Are you angry? Irritated? What? Uh, you, you, you need to be able to name that to yourself, to know that. That's not enough. Now turn the page and you see which category is that in and what are you supposed to do about that? Those five hindrances, I suppose there are techniques for removing. They're not supposed to be there. Removing and preventing. Oh, you're experiencing unworldly joy, like spiritual joy, the, the joy which comes from the relief of chasing things. So uh, the, the, the relief of a person who's hot and sweaty and tired and they find a big shady tree that they can just sit down under. That's, that's the kind of spiritual joy, is the joy of, of relief from the ordinary, endless pursuits of life. It's that feeling of having arrived and a feeling of ease. Now, what are you supposed to do? Don't get up and walk away. Stay there. Don't get back into the, the rat race. Stay there. So this is the, 
the nature of the of a right mindfulness. And of course, it's the first factor of the seven factors of awakening. So um, we will leave that for today. This is, as you can see, the seven factors are extremely rich um, treasure trove of teachings, nicely compacted, and they, they branch out into all kinds of other aspects of the path. But a very nice container and very hopeful, very uplifting, uh, very beautiful.